Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 18. And many think that this is the climax of the letter. This is where, for the past year, as we've studied, as we've read this letter, this is where we've been headed, is to these couple of paragraphs. It's the climax of the letter, but it's also one of the most dense sections of the letter. As I read this, I see allusions or quotes in just these couple of paragraphs from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, maybe Samuel and Kings, definitely Haggai and Isaiah, and then others see influences from the Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, and Zechariah. So when I read this thing, hang on to your seat, because the writer to the Hebrews, he's going to leave no Old Testament stone unturned as he unpacks what is in store for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus. I think there's a way to take these paragraphs and read them to the smallest child in our midst so that they can understand and trust in this hope. And I think there's a way to pick these paragraphs for a PhD dissertation. I'm going to leave it up to you which one you do with this. But I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Hear God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been created, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we just sang this beautiful line that sounds too good to be true. Be still, my soul. Jesus can repay from his fullness all he takes away. That's something you promise again and again in your word. And that's a promise we want to put to the test today from Hebrews chapter 12. Will you stand by your word? And will you, by your pure grace and love and mercy alone, repay us out of your bounty over and above anything you possibly take away from us. We ask humbly, we ask delightedly in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, you read these paragraphs and you hear about the scene that is coming at the end of the world in which God is going to take a hold of the cosmos. He's going to take a hold of heaven and earth. He's going to take a hold of everything that's been created, seen and unseen, and he's going to soften the whole of it. Depending on which prophet and which biblical writer you hear from, it's being described in very different ways. The writer to the Hebrews, he quotes Haggai when he says, God's going to take the cosmos and he's going to shake the thing. Peter, the apostle Peter, says that the universe is going to be burned and it's going to dissolve. The Apostle John, when he looks into this vision of the end of time, he writes in Revelation that that as we're looking over the created world, the sun is going to turn black and the stars are going to fall and the sky is going to completely vanish in front of us. It's going to be gone. But I think one of the most vivid descriptions is in Isaiah chapter 24 when he says, The earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. That's where this created world is headed. This is apocalyptic literature. This is literature that describes the end of time. This is not precision. This is poetry within prophecy to say, how do I describe something to us for which we have absolutely no frame of reference for? God's going to take a hold of this thing and he's going to shake it. And once the dust settles, stuff is gone. I mean, it is just gone. Things that we have spent a lot of money on, things that we have spent a lot of worry on, things that we have gathered to ourselves and we've locked up and we've guarded and we've been afraid to lend to another person stuff that we have actually worshipped. When God shakes the earth, it is going to be gone forever. There's no heads up, there's no warning, there's no do-over. In the blink of an eye, God grabs the universe, shakes it, and it is absolutely gone. You hear a paragraph like that, and it becomes a not-so-subtle nudge in the direction of taking inventory of what we have and what's in our life. I mean, literally, what would it look like to go home and to open up an Excel spreadsheet and to make two columns on that sheet, which says stuff that can be shaken and stuff that can't be shaken. What in my life, what do I have, what am I doing that is going to last forever? And what in my life will burn and dissolve and sway like a drunken man who falls and cannot get back up. That exercise to divide those two things, that's not as easy as it looks. It would kind of seem like you could just put the spiritual things over here and the physical things over here, and that's kind of how you begin to divide this order, but it's not so simple. And I'll give you an example. What about when we 
pick up our Bibles and we sit down with them in the morning and we pour ourselves a cup of hot coffee in our favorite mug and we read our Bible and we sip our coffee, we might think to ourselves, the reading of the Bible lasts, but the drinking of the coffee, that's the stuff that's going to be shaken, right? The physical and the spiritual, you can separate, but that's not true at all because what happens when I'm actually reading my Bible with apathy or distractedness. And what happens when I'm drinking my coffee with utter gratitude and worship? All of a sudden, it's the coffee drinking that stands and it's the Bible reading that is put away. It's not as easy as it might look to make these two categories. And the writer to the Hebrews, he knows that. And so he's going to help us take inventory of our lives and discern what in our lives is going to last forever. He's going to do that over the next couple of weeks that we're together. Today, where he starts with that inventory is not the cup of coffee. Today, what he starts with, the thing that cannot be shaken, is all about this marvelous celestial city of God. When we read this first paragraph, which is verses 18 to 24, in the Greek, that's really just two sentences, and it's a contrast of two different things. It is the contrast of how Israel used to approach God, and how we now as believers approach God in Christ. Those two things are being set against each other. They're being contrasted in this passage. And so look at verse 18. He starts by saying, we today, us, we have not come. And then the writer goes on to give us seven very scary descriptions of Moses and Israel standing before Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were received. And he says, you believer, that is not what you have come to. This is not the covenant that you stand under. This is not you. He says instead in verse 22, but you have come. And then he goes on to give us seven wonderful descriptions of our new approach to God on Mount Zion. You haven't come to this. This is not for you. Instead, believer, this is what you have come to. This is the mountain. This is the city to which you approach. Now, I want to visit that mountain today. I want to see that mountain. I want to see the city. I want to know what is in store for the believer. I want to do that with the writer. But honestly, I feel completely overwhelmed by that task because we're beginning to talk about something that we have absolutely no frame of reference for. We got to share last week about an opportunity in our church to receive a refugee family. They've transitioned here. They were from the Democratic Republic of Congo, but they have since spent 20 years in a refugee camp living in a tent in Tanzania. A week and a half ago, they flew to Columbia and our church was there to receive them and bring them to their apartment and help get them set up. And and you realize in the last couple of weeks, a lot has happened in the life of this family. They've flown on a plane for the first time. They've ridden on an escalator for the first time. They've jumped in a van and had a stranger climb all over them to show them how a seatbelt worked. They show up in an apartment and they learn about a light switch and a thermostat and how an oven turns on and off. And while we're just kind of standing around watching the translator take them through the apartment, we hear this very animated conversation in the kitchen. There's a lot of pointing and shouting, and we realize they're talking about the fire alarm. Someone is describing what actually happens when you set this thing off. 
wouldn't you pay money to be able to overhear the very first conversation that this family, our new friends, has with friends and family back in the camp in Tanzania? I mean, how's it going? How are you? Fine. What's America like? How do you even begin to describe what you've just experienced? I mean, do you know what a fire alarm is? We could start there and work our way back, but there, there's no frame of reference to talk about anything like that. Th- that's kind of like what we're encountering today. You've got this church receiving this letter. It's a persecuted church in Rome, and they're finding it very hard to make a permanent life in the land in Rome when people keep taking their property and throwing them into prison. And then you've got us today as hearers of this letter who are suffering. We're not being persecuted yet as this church has experienced persecution, but we're realizing just how much it costs to follow Jesus and just how weary we feel most days. And us and the original audience, we come to the writer, to the Hebrews, who has been talking about Jesus and the new covenant and the kingdom that is to come. And we're all asking, what's it like? Tell me about this kingdom. Describe it to me. Give me something. Tell me that what I'm enduring today is worth it because of who God is and what is in store for a believer. How do you even begin to answer a question like that? What, what's your frame of reference to understand the kingdom to come? I mean, have you ever met an angel face to face? If you haven't, it's going to be very difficult to describe what's in store for the believer. But the writer to the Hebrews, he takes courage, he takes a deep breath, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to explain this place to you. I'm going to give you some descriptions so that you know the kingdom that is yours now, of which you benefit now, and of which you will dwell in for the rest of your life. Here goes nothing. You have come to a city that's on a mountain. We know something about Jerusalem, right? Earthly Jerusalem. We know something about that city that King David made, the capital of Israel. It sits on Mount Zion. And as we read our Old Testaments, we understand something about when David made that his capital, God gave him incredible victory. I mean, he was able to finally defeat enemies that had harassed Israel from the moment they set foot in the promised land. He brought peace and prosperity. God did something marvelous in that city. In fact, a time came in that city where the Gentiles that had been defeated and now made peace with Israel, they actually began to travel to Israel to bring gifts and to hear for the first time about the one true God who dwelled there. We know something about that city, and if we do, we realize that's just a shadow. That's just a placeholder. That's, a, that's a, a land and a city that gets our imaginative juices flowing, that we can hear something about the earthly Jerusalem and know that it shows us something about the heavenly Jerusalem. Whatever peace, whatever joy you feel when you think about a permanent lasting city in which we will never be hurt or displaced again, Those are the feelings you're supposed to begin to channel when you hear about a lasting city, the city of God in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. That promise of permanence, that means something different to us at different seasons of our life. 
I promise you for a refugee whose visa status has just been frozen in an American airport to learn that there is a promise of permanence that is in store for a believer, that's one of the sweetest notes of the gospel. A time is coming in Jesus when I'm not going to be displaced anymore. A time is coming when I will find true refuge and I will be at one with my creator. That's one of the sweetest notes of the gospel we can hear. When we arrive in this city that cannot be shaken and it cannot move, we're going to notice that there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of bodies there. There's a lot of coming and going. In fact, we read in our passage that there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. There's a bunch of angels. Now, Daniel the prophet Daniel from the Old Testament, he actually got to see a vision of heaven and he wrote down some of what he saw and this is what he says. He says that a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. When I read something like that, I grab a calculator and I say, what is 10,000 times 10,000? And when I multiply them together, I get a hundred million. Now Daniel is not running a math class. He's giving us poetic prophecy, which is his way of saying, by the time you get to a hundred million angels in heaven, what's the point of counting anymore? I I just want to communicate to you that there's a bunch of angels that are there. That gives us pause to ask a really important question. How many angels does God need? You start to think about the angels that are there and you want to know how many angels are necessary. You read the story of angels in the Old Testament and you realize that one of the most dramatic places that an angel shows up is when Egypt is brought to her knees in the Passover and that took one angel. And then you read about the incredible victory that Israel had over the Assyrian army when they besieged Jerusalem, but one angel walks into the camp and strikes the army dead. You realize it only took one angel to contend with the prince of Persia, and it took one angel to visit Mary and to speak the good news to her that she was going to bear the Son of God. All of those things took one angel. Sometimes it's the same angel. And now we're reading that there are innumerable angels, hundreds of millions of angels, and we're asking the question, how many do we possibly need? The short answer from Hebrews is that this whole thing is a festal gathering. It is a party that is taking place in the New Jerusalem. And have you ever been to a party that is sparsely attended? It's awkward. It's awful. It's a bad thing to be a part of. As I was thinking about that, I realized that last year we had gone to a birthday party for a little girl in this church. And we were excited to go. It was an afternoon drop-in, and I grab my daughter, we wrap the present, we drive over to the house, and there's not a single car there. 
And as we're getting out of the car and walking to the door, my mind is just swirling. What excuse can you give a precious little girl that we're the only people who are attending her party? And they greet us at the door and we say happy birthday and give them the gift. And they say, this is so sweet of you guys. The party's not till next Saturday. (laughs) And it was a huge relief. But I'm telling you, it's awkward to be the only one at a party. And when we're asking the question, how many angels do we need? It's like God is saying, maybe we don't need a hundred million angels, but if you're throwing an everlasting wedding banquet that is going to go on for all eternity, let's just kick things off on the right foot, right? Let's just get angels mingling so that nobody feels awkward or left out. That's happening now in the new Jerusalem that is from above. Mixing and mingling with these angels in the kingdom are two groups of people. There's a little debate over which group is which or if they're one and the same thing. My interpretation is you've got two groups. And number one is here in verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I take these to be those who have died as believers before Jesus came. So they knew something about the coming of Jesus, but they didn't know about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. They're the saints we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. They're the firstborn. They are the first to trust in God. They're the firstborn of believers, the fruit of what Jesus has won. In heaven, now before the throne are Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and all of those nameless saints we read who have passed on before the coming of Christ. But also there with them and with the angels are this second group of people. Verse 23, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And I take those to be all those who have died in Christ, after Christ has come. Anybody who has put faith in Christ, who dies now, they are absent from the body and they are present with the Lord. They are standing in front of Jesus in this city as we speak. Paul says about them, those who die, that they don't have bodies right now. Their spirit passes to heaven. There won't be a new body until everyone is resurrected and the new heavens and the new earth comes and then we inhabit new bodies together. And that's why in our passage, they're called spirits. They're waiting for that new body that has been promised. But I suspect for those who have died and are worshiping in front of Jesus, that makes little matter to them right now. They're not missing the body that they're going to get very shortly. As beautiful as all of this is, as wonderful as it is to imagine walking in a new, secure, peaceful city whose streets are paved with gold, as fantastic as it is to imagine that we will get to explore a new heaven and a new earth and see it brighter and fuller as God intended it to be, as fantastic as it is to hear that we're going to stand there shoulder to shoulder with a hundred million angels, with Old Testament saints whom we've adored from afar and all those who we've lost in the Lord to be there together, all of that is going to grow dim before the throne that replaces the sun and it replaces the temple and on it sits the one true God. He's there on his throne And at his right hand is Jesus, and before him is the Spirit, 
It is one God in three persons, and we will see the Lord. We're going to stand in this city, and we are going to see the Lord. Hebrews describes him as God, judge of all. And at his right hand is his son Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It would be a terrifying thing to stand alone before God as judge of all, but we hear immediately that that judgment, that wrath has passed over us and onto his son Jesus, and the only word that's being spoken in heaven right now is this new and better word. It is the word of forgiveness and mercy and love that resonates throughout heaven forever and ever and ever. We are going to do the one thing that we were created to do that we have never ever fully done and that is to worship God face to face without reservation, without fear, without doubt, without ingratitude and we're going to do that forever. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let us see this kingdom from afar. Let us see this kingdom as citizens who have already inherited it and its benefits. And let us rejoice and we beg you to come quickly, Lord Jesus Do that, we ask in your name. Amen.